Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has things in life that we just take for granted, things that we no longer question, but we just assume in our approach to the world. For instance, I just assume that this podium isn't going to spontaneously combust. You're just assuming that the chair you're sitting on is not going to evaporate into a cloud of steam. Your worldviews, our worldviews, they account for that. Uh, we don't even think about it. We just assume it because the laws of science are consistent. Something else. We all have standards in place by which we can discover more truth about the world, don't we? It doesn't really matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist. All of us have standards that dictate the limits of reality and the limits of human knowledge. Certain things we hear about or read about, we dismiss instantly. Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We dismiss even the possibility of those things instantly because they don't meet that standard. We say, that's impossible. That's not real. Other things we grant as possibilities. Yes, that, that could happen. That could be. Bigfoot could exist. UFOs could exist. God could perhaps exist. Perhaps Jesus rose from the grave. But other things are functional, non-negotiables of life. The certain things that we hold to, that we believe. All of us have standards that dictate the limits of reality and the limits of human knowledge, be we Christian or not. As well, all of us have standards which inform our morality, our ethics. Everyone from Mother Teresa to Joseph Stalin. There are things that you think are moral, and things that you think are immoral. And the person sitting beside you may take the opposite view. And when we combine all those things, that's called a worldview. Everyone, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a reasonably comprehensive interpretation of reality, whether it's thought through or not. And our worldview affects all we do. I don't know if you recall, but a few years ago, Starbucks invited us to share in Oprah Winfrey's worldview. Do you remember steep time and, and the cardboard sleeves that were put on Starbucks coffees? Uh, the, the big banners in the Starbucks places would say, Oprah invites you to take a few minutes, a few moments to pause and reflect on each day your own personal steep time. And so here's a, a representative sampling. <clears throat> Be more splendid. Be more extraordinary. Use every moment to fill yourself up. Or, know what sparks the light in you. Then use that light to illuminate the world. Now, that advice, right, it's wisdom, it's morality, it's conformity to reality. It's all informed by Oprah's worldview. And we'll receive it or not each of us, based on our worldview, our own interpretation of reality. Christians have a worldview. Christians interpret all of reality through the matrix of what God has revealed to us in the Holy Scripture. The triune God who has revealed himself in the Bible, he is our highest authority. And 
God reveals to us in the Bible that everything, all of human history, all of reality, and what lies at the very center of God's eternal purpose is wrapped up with his son, Jesus Christ, and his church. So no matter what your worldview may be, friend, no matter how many things you may have right about reality on some level, if everything isn't focused like a laser beam on Jesus Christ, his cross, his resurrection, his church, his eternal reign, then God says your worldview ultimately is bankrupt. You've got it terribly wrong, wrong, wrong. Your worldview doesn't conform to the truth because your interpretation of reality doesn't conform to the will of God as it's disclosed in Holy Scripture. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor John, what on earth does this have to do with taking other Christians to court? Absolutely everything. Brothers and sisters, our worldview informs how we evaluate the relative importance of our worldly possessions compared to the treasure we will receive in Jesus' consummated kingdom. The Bible speaks to that. It informs our perspective on life, and we live accordingly. Also, how we're to live before an unbelieving world with the purity of the gospel on full display, how we understand our legal rights, brothers and sisters... And how that's balanced out with love for our neighbor, even if it means we get cheated. It all flows from a biblical worldview focused on the cross. It's why Christians live the way that we do. It's all linked to the gospel. That glorious reality that once our lives were characterized by sin and wickedness, but now we've been washed by Jesus. But now, we've been set apart. But now, we've been forgiven of our sins with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and given the indwelling spirit so that we now live holy lives in obedience to the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Brothers and sisters, that knowledge impacts every thought every attitude, every decision, every prioritization. It informs the choices we make in life, even even the costly sacrifices. But as we read through 1 Corinthians, we see that the faith of the church in Corinth, however sincere it may have been, has not yet transformed the worldview they inherited from the surrounding pagan culture. They have not grasped how the theology of the cross not only constitutes the basis of salvation, but also, inevitably, teaches Christians how to live in this world and how to serve each other. That's what we're going to see today in this text. There is a clash of worldview happening How the Corinthians are living now as God's future people, as citizens of Jesus' consummated kingdom, living in the present, 
is in direct conflict with what God has revealed in Old Testament Scripture and through the teachings and writings of the Apostle Paul. So they need to get back in line with what they'd previously been taught and believed. They need to live like what they really are, in the light of what Jesus has actually done on their behalf. As we'll see over and over in this sermon series, there are so many areas of Corinthian church life where the foolishness of the cross has fallen by the wayside and a spirituality based on the self-seeking priorities and wisdoms, wisdom of this fallen world has taken its place. There's been a terrible exchange. And so today we come to this matter of lawsuits between believers in the church. And we're immediately reminded that this church in Corinth is a sinful, sinful mess. A member of the church. Right? Now just imagine this was happening at New City Baptist, okay? A member of the church has defrauded, criminally defrauded, another member. He's out and out, simply defrauded a brother in Jesus Christ. So just imagine uh, Nick defrauds Kishan. Nick does some electrical contracting for Kishan, and he rips him off. And to redress this grievance, the wronged Corinthian brother has brought the man who defrauded him before the civil magistrate. A judgment seat publicly located in the heart of the marketplace. Which means the whole city is hearing this go down. And the Apostle Paul is horrified. It, it doesn't matter what the verdict is. Guilty, not guilty. Who cares? Who cares? It's a total defeat for all parties. It's a defeat for the whole church. As well as for both Christians in the case no matter who wins. And just like the case of the man in chapter 5, who's in a sexual relationship with his stepmother, Paul's heaviest artillery is aimed at the church itself for allowing this to happen. How has it come to this? What's our problem, you city? Nick rips off Kishan. Kishan takes Nick to civil court, and we sit back as a church and we just let it happen? The Corinthian church has failed these two men. And as a whole, plaintiff, defendant, and church, they've brought the gospel into public disrepute. Yes, shame on the man for defrauding his brother. And, and look out, people who are characterized by greed, people who swindle others unrepentantly, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and yes, shame on the man who got ripped off for not willing to be cheated in light of the future blessings he now enjoys in Jesus Christ. That blind spot in his eschatology has put his earthly priorities out of whack. But most of all, shame on the entire church for allowing this matter to be aired before unbelieving judges and not taking care of the matter amongst themselves. That's the whole thrust of this chapter. It just goes to show how little self-understanding they have as to who they actually are in Jesus Christ and what is theirs in the gospel. And so by looking at the Corinthians' negative example, 
their sinful example, we learn how to please God through our obedience. I need to stress this, beloved. This text is doing so much more than teaching us not to sue other Christians. God's telling us who we once were outside of Jesus Christ. That we led lives characterized by unrepentant wrongdoing. We were sexually immoral. We were idolaters. We were thieves. We were greedy people, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers. But now, because of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin, we are the future, the future people of God living in the present. And because that last time's reality is an integral part of our worldview, then our priorities our perspective on things such as how we relate to our money, how we relate to our possessions, our legal rights, legal justice, it's all massively affected. All those trivial things, and that's the word the Apostle Paul uses, those trivial things get pushed to the side and the gospel Our local church, the people of God, our Christian witness in this fallen world, our future hope, they take the preeminence now. So look at your first point in your bulletin, an exasperated rebuke, the first eight verses. And that exasperation isn't the exasperation of a tired parent after a long day with the children. Come on, kids, work it out amongst yourselves. Just just play nice, please. No, the apostles' exasperation is due to the Corinthians' bad eschatology. Look what it says under the first point in your bulletin. In light of eschatological realities. And eschatology is just a fancy word for the study of last things. That this movement toward the already here, not yet come, new creational reign of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God. In light of that, in light of eschatological realities, the Corinthians should be able to settle their own disputes. And be willing to suffer wrong. There's two points to that. Willing, willing to uh, suffer wrong and to settle their own disputes. And, and that's not just the Corinthians, of course. That applies to all Christians. To put it another way, Christians are the Lord's future people now. And we live between two worlds. And that truth brings with it all sorts of entailments. But one entailment is this. We have the ability, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the ability to settle disputes between one another. There's no need for Christians in this church to go to civil court against one another. I mean, it's it's embarrassing to say it out loud like that, but there it is. It's just a plain fact. In light of eschatological realities, we should be able to settle our own disputes and be willing to suffer wrong. How's that going in this time of COVID? Not too well. The Corinthian church 
lacks this biblical outlook. I think much of the evangelical church in the West lacks this outlook. The gospel hasn't transformed their pagan worldview. And something else isn't connecting either. Christians are to have a, a, a holy detachment to the material things of this present world, aren't we? A detachment that's going to evidence itself in a willingness to part with our money and our property, even be cheated out of it, if the reputation of the church is at stake. But this too, the Corinthians lack. That's not how they're looking at reality. And so we have Paul's exasperated rebuke in verse 1 of chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Paul's horrified. He finds this whole situation incredible. It's, it's wrong on so many levels. What's his problem? Why is the apostle so upset? Because Paul understands the gospel and its entailments. Paul understands, in consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, what God is going to do through his people on the day of judgment. And it just makes this whole situation ludicrous. Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Now, Paul doesn't explain what this Christian judgment of the world looks like, either the part that we play or how it unfolds, nor does anybody else in the New Testament. This is one of those texts cloaked in mystery. God hasn't seen fit to disclose all the details of what this is going to look like. But Christians are, in some way, involved in rendering judgment on the final day. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, Here are those who will not inherit the kingdom, whom God through his people will judge. But you are bringing your trivial cases your trivial civil lawsuits before these same people for adjudication. There you are. You're standing in the marketplace in the city center. You're at Young and Dundas declaring to the whole world, this brother in Jesus Christ sold me a diseased pig. Decide between the two of us. This sister in Christ encroached on my property line when she built the addition to her home, decide between the two of us, do you dare do this? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Again, what that looks like, we don't know. But in some sense, Christians are going to judge fallen angels on the last day, the highest order of created being. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible 
There is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. And verse 5, of course, is just dripping with irony because the Corinthian church is full of people who are full of pride and arrogance. Uh, This is a church where wisdom, a wisdom which suggests a higher, superior spirituality, is actually the all-important status symbol. These people, the people in this church, they thought that they were operating on a higher spiritual plane of wisdom. And Paul's showing them their true condition over against their perceived condition. He's saying, look, guys, you're supposedly living on this higher spiritual plane of wisdom. You boast about it nonstop, sinfully so. Are you telling me there's no one in your church who can make a judgment call about the sale of a diseased pig or a property line dispute? What's the matter with you? Verse 6. But instead, one brother takes another to court. And this in front of unbelievers. Paul is tearing his hair out, right? This is disgraceful. You're airing the church's dirty laundry in a public forum, in an unbelieving forum, in front of people you one day will judge. Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Don't you see that your gospel witness to the world is utterly compromised by these actions? What were you thinking? Why are you acting so inconsistently with the reality of the gospel? With who you are in Jesus Christ? How come those things haven't caught on fire in your own thinking? Why are you disregarding what is yours in the gospel and will be yours in the new heavens and new earth? Now, I'm moving through this text at a fairly rapid clip uh, because I'm trying to preach the passage like it reads. Almost as this, I I think you can imagine the Apostle Paul kind of grabbing the Corinthian church by the lapels and just kind of giving them a shake like this. They should know better. Which is why Paul says, do you not know six times in this chapter? Really think about that. Do you not know? 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 The tone of the entire passage is one of incredulous, exasperated rebuke. But with verse 7, I'm going to slow things down a bit. Verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Which is to say, you've lost the integrity of your status as holy people. And Paul's directing that point to all three parties, the plaintiff, the defendant, and the church as a whole. First, the plaintiff, the man who has been wronged and who took the case to civil court in the first place. Paul's telling him, brother, whether you win, whether you lose, the legal action itself is already a loss. Even if you win, you lose. Because it's been shown, even though you are a future citizen of Jesus' consummated kingdom, that you are not able to endure injury. Before the eyes of the unbelieving world, you've shown how much of a premium you place on your property, your possessions, and your legal rights. And so the church 
loses by your action before this public tribunal. And then Paul drops a bomb. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Just let that sit there for a minute. That, that's when we know that Paul is looking at matters of personal rights, legal rights, money, possessions, justice in this world from a perspective, and it's an eschatological perspective, beloved, which eludes many Christians. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Let me tell you, personally, the knife goes deep into my heart when I read a verse like that. That's not my knee-jerk reaction, let me tell you. Why not rather be cheated? Now, something I'm not going to do in this sermon is give case studies. What about in this situation? What about in that situation? Nor is there a biblically prescribed course as to how the Lord's people arbitrate in matters like this, but there are fundamental principles of prudence and wisdom a church should follow. Traditionally, wisely, the elders play a big role in matters like this. And by God's grace, we have three lawyers at New City who can lend us assistance on legal matters. But what I want us to see here is the heart. What's happening in verse 7? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? How could the Apostle Paul say something like that with a straight face? Is he off his rocker? He's calling for this believer not just to forgo his legal rights, but to willingly suffer injustice and abuse, rather than take his dispute with his brother in Christ before a pagan court. So he's not saying there's no recourse at all. He's saying just don't do it before a pagan court. Beloved, God's telling us all on an individual level that we ought to be more willing to place the church's interests above our own and to suffer unjust treatment, even to forgo our legal rights, than to damage the church's witness in the world. And this willingness of Christians to suffer injustice and abuse for the cause of Christ is a major theme in New Testament scriptures, isn't it? Do you recall what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40? And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And that outer garment, that coat, was recognized in the law of Moses, Exodus twenty-two twenty-six, to be an inalienable possession. By decree of God, no one was allowed to take that coat from an Israelite. But Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. What's at stake here is a principle, and it's the same principle Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here, this is everything. Even those things 
we regard as our right by law, we must be prepared to abandon. That's how God's future people live in this present world. Even those things which we regard as our right by law, we must be prepared to abandon. That's how God's future people live in this present world. You see, this is where, if I can call it, the eschatological rubber meets the road. It's not in counting toes on statues in Daniel or horns on beasts in Revelation. It's about the followers of Jesus Christ preferring to be wronged, preferring to be cheated, rather than entering into litigation with another follower of Jesus. Rather than bringing the gospel and the church into public shame. This is Holy Spirit-empowered New Covenant sanctification. We continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as God himself works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And because of the salvation mercies lavished upon us at the cross of Jesus Christ, we are a people completely and unreservedly devoted to God. And so we, brothers and sisters, we voluntarily, we gladly offer up our entire lives, our whole selves, as living sacrifices of worship to God, holding nothing back in autonomous, self-serving reserve. No God-fearing Christian is thinking, I love God, but there's one tiny little parcel of my life that's all mine, over which I get to rule. My money, my time, my dignity, my rights. Friends, this is the key to understanding everything in our text today. Our lives no longer belong to us. Our lives belong to Jesus. We recognize we have no rights. Be that a right to a good reputation in this world, respect, sexual fulfillment, relational fulfillment, family, money, personal dignity, comfort, health, Justice, property. You see, the cause of Christ, the reputation of the church before the world, the fact that we are the future people of God living in the present, that's to be an ever-functioning part of our worldview. That's always before our eyes. That's how we interact with and interpret all of reality. And so the importance of this Corinthian man's property and his desire to retrieve the money that he's been swindled out of at any cost to the church's reputation has far too much sway in his thinking. Gospel priorities are being displaced. His eternal perspective is being lost. And Paul is telling him, shame on you, brother. Don't you know what time it is, salvation historically? Property and material possessions are of little consequence to those destined to inherit the eternal kingdom. If this man had only endured, 
being wronged. If he had only endured being cheated, then he would have truly won. Christian, can you think of ways that this might apply to you in your relationships in this local assembly? Verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. And that's also a word directed at the defendant, the defrauder. Paul's anticipating here what he's going to tell that guy in verses 8 through 10. He's telling him, by your sinful wrongdoing, which precipitated this lawsuit, you too have suffered defeat. What in the world were you thinking? Even if you had gained some temporal advantage through your thievery, don't you realize you stand in greater danger of losing your eternal inheritance? But no matter what the result of the lawsuit, whether the plaintiff or the defendant wins, it's the Corinthian church as a whole that's the real loser in this. The entire church was defeated the moment these legal proceedings began. Why? Because this lawsuit serves as testimony to the church's failure to resolve conflict. This outpost of heaven, filled with the present and future people of God, this temple of God where his spirit dwells, these people who will be judging angels, these people who will judge the world, They cannot resolve conflict within their own midst. And so Paul gives the following warning. Those lives who are characterized by sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Point number two, an eschatological warning, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Speaking as a pastor, that is a nightmare verse. A nightmare. Paul Paul knew these people. He loved them. He baptized some of them. He labored in their midst for a year and a half. He planted the church. The church wasn't five years old, but it's come to this. And in effect, Paul is saying, even though you should know better and not be like them, you are just like the pagans who surround you. In your midst, there is greed, there is fraud, not to mention uh, sexual immorality and idolatry, and that with brothers and sisters in Jesus. This kind of sinful behavior is not only shameful, but it cannot, it cannot be tolerated. Don't you know there are consequences for unrepentant sin? Verse 9, or you do not know. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, it's important we keep the flow of Paul's argument. In the overall context, Paul's been speaking to the church. These wrongdoers are members of the church. They are professing Christians who are living just like the pagans who surround them. That's whom Paul's addressing. The apostle is not saying, if anybody 
has done something sinful, if you are even now, friend, characterized by some or even all of the sins listed in verses 9 through 10, then there is no hope for you. He's not saying that. You can never be saved. You're beyond the pale because wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, not at all. God makes the offer of full salvation to every sinner. And we're all sinners. He, he offers salvation to the worst of sinners, to you, to me, to all who bow the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. As the old hymn says, Jesus' blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So, if you're here today and you're a foul, foul sinner, if, if you've done some really disgusting things in your life, then come to Jesus. Believe in him. He will clean you. God will forgive you. He will not punish you for your sin. Because on the cross, Jesus bore the sin and guilt and divine wrath due every sinner who calls on his name in faith. No, verse 9 is directed toward the professing Christian. It's directed toward the members of the Corinthian church. It's directed toward the Christian who is nurturing sin. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And Paul's not talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness here. He's not talking about stupid, sinful lapses. He's talking about a whole way of life that is pursued persistently, unrepentantly. This is persistent rebellion against God. Not the temporary backsliding or sinful lapse of the true believer. And as such... It shows a person's profession of faith in Jesus to be made up of deceit and lies because they are sexually immoral. They are greedy. They are drunkards. They are slanderers. They are swindlers. Their lives are characterized by sin. And Paul's point is to warn, to warn the Lord's people not only the man who has wronged his brother, but the whole church. If they persist in sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Look at this text. Do not be deceived. And it doesn't matter how, friend, how robust your theology may be. All right. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Friend, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you, you are a heaven-bound sinner, forgiven sinner, when you're not when you prefer your sin to repentance and living faithfully for Jesus Christ. I want us to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 21. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 21. This is Jesus talking. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, the last day, the day of the Lord, 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 did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And what makes this judgment scene so tragic is that these people take themselves to be real believers, real Christians, don't they? They expect to be granted admission into the kingdom, and they're shocked, they're unprepared when Jesus, who they thought was their Savior, disowns them. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Jesus tells us there are many people who use the right language, who even perform spiritual wonders in his name, who are not genuine disciples. So if that's the case, then what is the essential characteristic of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? If it's not loud professions of Lord, Lord, or spectacular spiritual triumphs or great spiritual experiences, what is it? We need to know. The true believer's chief characteristic is obedience. True believers perform the will of God the Father. They are not evildoers. They are not workers of lawlessness. As Carson reminds us, the Father's will is not simply admired, discussed, praised, or debated. It is done. And so, my friend, look to your own life. Don't be spiritually deceived. Be honest with yourself. Did you perhaps enjoy some spiritual experience in the past, and now you're living in the glow of that experience? You're coasting on its fumes rather than living a present life of repentant faith and obedience. Not the obedience which earns merit points, but an obedience which bows the knee to Jesus' lordship in everything, 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 without reservation. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But now, the glorious revolution brought about by the preaching of the gospel comes out in the quiet words of verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Ah, what joy it is to read that verse, to know its truth, and to rejoice in the grace of the gospel of our Savior. 
God's electing grace in Jesus Christ can reach anyone. And God chose the sexually immoral in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And that's what some of us were, New City. We were adulterers and adulteresses. We were fornicators, porn addicts, men who have had sex with men, women who had sex with women, all chosen from before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. In love, God predestined swindlers and thieves for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. And then, by God's enabling grace, we believed. We repented of our sin, we were baptized, and we joined this church. In Jesus, drunkards and drug addicts have redemption through his blood. Our sins are forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on the church. This is a snapshot of us, New City. This is what some of us were. And if it's not the sins listed here, then our lives were characterized by our unrepentant wallowing in 1,000 other sins. We all, all lived lives characterized by our sin. Lives characterized by us shaking our puny little fists in God's face in pathetic, autonomous rebellion. But no longer... There has been a supernatural new covenant transformation through the gracious work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We were washed. We were cleansed from the filth of our sin. And now we're clean before God. We're a spiritually transformed people. We were sanctified. We were set apart as holy, separated from a godless lifestyle, possessed by God the Holy Spirit. We were justified we were declared righteous by god despite our many sins and set in a right relation with god to god vindicated by god all through jesus christ and the indwelling spirit of god but do you see the arc of paul's argument and with this i'm going to close paul's making a theological statement brothers and sisters And it's one of the most important theological statements in the entire letter. He's telling the Corinthian church, and so the entire people of God throughout the ages, your conversion, affected by God through the work of Christ and the Spirit, is what has removed you from being among the wicked of this world, those who will not inherit the kingdom. Therefore... Live out this new life in Christ and stop being like the wicked. Stop defrauding people. Stop living in sexual sin. Stop getting drunk. That is what some of you were. But now, in Jesus Christ, you are something different. So live like it. Live like what you are in Jesus Christ. Amen.